Chapter Three, Part Two of Constance Dunlap by Arthur B. Reeve. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Gunrunners continued. Piece by piece, Santos and she secretly carried out the goods that had already been collected at the Junta during the next few days. Without a word to a soul, they were shipped south. The boxes and barrels remained in the musty shop, apparently undisturbed. Next, the order for the arms and ammunition was quietly diverted, so that they, too, were on their way to New Orleans. Instead, cases resembling them were sent to the Junta headquarters. Drummond, least of all, must be allowed to think that there was any change in their plans. While Santos was at work gathering the parts, the stamping machine, the press, the dies, the plates, and the rest of the counterfeiting plant, which had not yet been delivered, Constance, during the hours that she was not collecting money from the concession-grabbers, haunted the Junta. There was every evidence of activity there as the week advanced. She was between two fires, yet never had she enjoyed the tang of adventure more than now. It was a keen pleasure to feel that she was outwitting Drummond when, as some apparently insurmountable difficulty arose, she would overcome it. More delicate was it, however, to preserve the balance between Santos and Gordon. In fact, it seemed that the more she sought to avoid Gordon, the more jealously did he pursue her. It was a tangled skein of romance and intrigue that Constance was weaving. At last, all was ready. It was the night before the departure of Santos for the South. Constance had decided on the last interview in her own rooms, where the first had been. "'I shall go ahead preparing as if to ship the things on the Arroyo,' she said. "'Let me know by the code the moment you are ready.' santos was looking at her oblivious of everything else he reached over and took her hand she knew this was the moment against which she had steeled herself come with me he said suddenly she could feel his breath hotly on her cheek it was the final struggle if she let go of herself all would be lost no ramon she said softly but without withdrawing her hand it can never be listen it was terrific to hold in check a nature such as his. I went into this scheme for, for money. I have it. We have raised nearly forty thousand dollars. Twenty thousand you have given me as my share. She paused. He was paying no attention to her words. His whole self was centered on her face. With me, she continued, half wearily withdrawing her hand as she assumed the part she had decided on for herself. With me, Raymond, love is dead. Dead. I have seen too much of the world. Nothing has any fascination for me now except excitement, money. He gently leaned over and recovered the hand that she had withdrawn. Quickly he raised it to his lips, as he had done that first night. You are mine, he whispered, not his. She did not withdraw the hand this time. No, not his, nobody's. For a moment the adventurers understood each other. Not his he muttered fiercely, as he threw his arms about her wildly, passionately. "'Nobody's!' she panted, as she gave one answering caress, then struggled from him. She had conquered not only Ramon Santos, but Constance Dunlap. Early the next morning he was speeding southward over the clicking rails. Every energy must be bent toward keeping the new scheme secret until it was carried out successfully. Not a hint must get to Drummond that there was any change in the activities of the junta. As for the junta itself, there was no one of those who believed implicitly in Santos, whom Constance need fear, except Gordon. 
Gordon was the Bête Noire. Two days passed, and she was able to guard the secret, as well as to act as though nothing had happened. Santos had left a short note for the Junta, telling them that he would be away for a short time, putting the finishing touches on the purchase of the arms. The arrival of a cartload of cases at the Junta, which Constance arranged for herself, bore out the letter. Still, she waited anxiously for word from him. The day set for the sailing of the Arroyo arrived, and with it at last a telegram. Buy corn, oats, wheat, sell cotton. It was the code telling of the safe arrival of the rifles, cartridges, and the counterfeiting plant in New Orleans, a little late, but safe. Sell cotton meant I sail tonight. On the way over to the Junta, she had noticed one of Drummond's shadows dogging her. She must do anything to keep the secret until that night. She hurried into the dusty ship chandlery. There was Gordon. "'Good morning, Mrs. Dunlap,' he cried. "'You are just the person I am looking for. Where is Santos? Has the plan been changed?' Constance thought she detected a shade of jealousy in the tone. At any rate, Gordon was more attentive than ever. "'I think he is in Bridgeport,' she replied as casually as she could. "'Your ship, you know, sails tonight.' He has sent word to me to give orders that all the goods here at the Junta be ready to cart over by truck to Brooklyn. There has been no change. The papers are to be signed during the day, and she is to be scheduled to sail late in the afternoon with the tide. Only, as you know, some pretext must delay you. You will hold her at the pier for us. He trusts all that to you as a master hand at framing such excuses that seem plausible. Gordon leaned over closer to her. He was positively revolting to her in the role of admirer, but she must not offend him, yet. "'And my answer?' he asked. There was something about him that made Constance almost draw away involuntarily. "'Tonight, at the pier,' she murmured, forcing a smile. Shortly after dark the team started their lumbering way across the city and the bridge. Messengers, stationed on the way, were to report the safe progress of the trucks to Brooklyn." Constance slipped away from the boarding-house, down through the deserted streets to the waterfront, leaving word at home that any message was to be sent by a trusty boy to the pier. It was a foggy and misty night on the water, an ideal night for the gun-runner. She was relieved to learn that there had been not a hitch so far. Still, she reasoned, that was natural. Drummond, even if he had not been outwitted, would scarcely have spoiled the game until the last moment. On the Arroyo, everyone was chafing. Below decks, the engineer and his assistants were seeing that the machinery was in perfect order. Men in the streets were posted to give Gordon warning of any danger. In the river, a tug was watching for a possible police boat. On the wharf, the only footfalls were those of Gordon himself and an assistant from the Yinta. It was dreary waiting, and Constance drew her coat more closely around her as she shivered in the night wind and tried to brace herself against the unexpected. At last the welcome muffled rumble of heavily laden carts disturbed the midnight silence of the street leading to the river. At once a score of men sprang from the hold of the ship, as if by magic. One by one the cases were loaded. The men were working feverishly by the light of battle lanterns, big lamps with reflectors so placed as to throw the light exactly where it was needed and nowhere else. They were taking aboard the Arroyo dozens of coffin-like wooden cases, and bags and boxes smaller and even heavier. Silently and swiftly they toiled. It was risky work, too, at night and in the tense haste, 
There was a muttered exclamation. A heavy case had dropped. A man had gone down with a broken leg. It was a common thing with the gunrunners. The crew of the Arroyo had expected it. The victim of such an accident could not be sent to a hospital ashore. He was carried, as gently as the rough hands could carry anything, to one side, where he lay silently, waiting for the ship's surgeon who had been engaged for just such an emergency. Constance bent over and made the poor fellow as comfortable as she could. There was never a whimper from him, but he looked his gratitude. Scarcely a fraction of a minute had been lost. The last cases were now being loaded. The tug crawled up and made fast. Already the empty trucks were vanishing in the misty darkness, one by one, as muffled as they came. Suddenly lights flashed through the fog on the river. There was a hurried tread of feet on the land from around the corner of a bleak, forbidding black warehouse. They were surrounded. On one side was the police boat patrol. On the other was Drummond. With both was the Secret Service. The surprise was complete. Constance turned to Gordon. He was gone. Before she could move, someone seized her. "'Where's Santos?' demanded a hoarse voice in her ear. She looked up to see Drummond. She shut her lips tightly, secure in the secret that Ramon was at the moment, or soon would be on the gulf, out of reach. Across in the fog she strained her eyes. Was that the familiar figure of Gordon, moving in the dim light? There he was now, with Drummond, the police, and the Secret Service. It was exactly as she had suspected to herself, and a smile played over her face. All was excitement, shouts, muttered imprecations. Constance was the calmest in the crowd, deaf even to Drummond's third degree. They had begun to break open the boxes, marked salt and corn. A loud exclamation above the sharp crunching of the axes escaped Gordon. Damn them! They've put one across on us! The boxes of salt and corn contained salt and corn. Not a stock of a rifle, not a barrel, not a cartridge was in any of them, as the axes crashed in one case after another. A boy with a telegram emerged indiscreetly from the misty shadows. Drummond seized it, tore it open, and read, Buy Cotton. It was the code. I am off safely. The double cross had worked. Constance was thinking, as she smiled to herself, of the money, her share, which she had hidden. There was not a scrap of tangible evidence against her, except what Santos had carried with him in the filibustering expedition already off from New Orleans. Her word would stand against that of all of the victims combined before any jury that could be impaneled. "'You thought I needed a warning,' she cried, facing Drummond with eyes that flashed scorn at the skulking figure of Gordon behind him. "'But the next time you employ a stool-pigeon to make love,' she added, "'reckon in that thing you detectives scorn, a woman's intuition.'" End of chapter 4